Hello and welcome to episode 122 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike rogue. My name is Stanislav here wait, in Chicago. Wait, wait, that's not our show. That's not us. That's somebody Dan else's is, show. Cave Dan Where's Dan? Gonna, he's so mad at us. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Uh, Stanislav, for this week, I need you to call me Rogue Shane, not just Shane. Ro- in into the Shaney, uh, memory memory Shane, uh, drown in the Shane. I, I just want you to call me Rogue Fun this week. <laughs> uh, Dave, just man, the softball Cecil Fielder, just crank that over the fence and rock and jock softball. I prefer to be Michael Bolton in that scenario, but sure. Also with us. The godfather of rogue fun, Dave Harbarger. That's right. The Michael Bolton of the dive down. Here to tell you that I suddenly can't remember any Michael Bolton songs. So sorry, I can't make a joke. On this week's episode, we're doing a good old-fashioned deck dive into one of Historic's strongest current decks, Blue Black Rogues. Also known as Demir. Yeah. I'm trying to remember if there's like Prismari for it, but I don't think they've changed the name no. of Blue Black no, no, no. yet. Does this mean we're also doing a standard deck dive? I hope not. Hmm. Used to be the best deck in standard. Could it be the best deck in historic? We'll find out. We're also kicking off the show with a breakdown of Saturday's Modern Challenge. A fantastic top eight featuring a Slav. But first, let's housekeep. Shout out to the newest patrons to join the Dive Down Nation, Jean V. Also, big thanks to Tanner W for increasing the tier in their support appreciate you both and a special thanks goes out to kd mears for leaving a new review on itunes yeah kd mears uh appreciates the best magic community we've got here at the dive down nation and so do we so thanks for that review also fatilis 98 uh appreciates our love of is it phoenix laments that we overlook hollow one we haven't always overlooked hollow one there's just not too much to look at in the past few years, unfortunately. Also, it's hollow, so there's not much to see. Oh, man. Dave's on Dave's on one tonight, y'all. <laughs> He's wearing a weird t-shirt. It's my fun. It's my party shirt. It's my Rogue Fun shirt. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon over at, uh, I think it's patreon.com slash the dive down. All one word. I'm pretty confident that's what it is. Money goes directly to us. You get into the Super Secret Slack channel and other swag and benefits. You get to access to the episode early. We started putting out the video early so you can see us record in addition to just listening to us record. That's only available to patrons. Yeah, sorry about last week that did not get out. We had a lot of technical issues in the recording. Thankfully, uh, editor editor Tanner makes it seem so seamless. But uh, yeah, this week we'll get the video up. But we don't have one remote person and one person having vaccination uh, reactions and one person who's a guest. So it's it's going to be a lot smoother today. Knock on wood. Yeah, you're also uh, we're also supported by Mana Traders, ManaTraders.com. Use promo code the dive down all one word 15 percent off your first three months. You know how this works. Mana Traders. Be better at magic. Do it. Also untapped.thedivedown.com. Download the untapped tracking software. Uh, see how you're doing on the old ladder 
in your drafts, things like that. I've been liking it this week. This week, I love Untapped because my stats are okay. Pretty good. I loved it Friday night, hated it Saturday night. You know how that is. Oh, yeah. All right. With all that out of the way, let's jump over to Dave on the news desk this week. Yeah, it's been a while since I've done one of these, but I think that given we are doing a historic dive down this week, we wanted to spend a little bit of time with Modern, check in, see what's going on. So we're going to talk about Saturday's Modern Challenge. That would be Saturday, April 24th. First thing I wanted to do is give a shout out to Reddit user Bamzing, who posts really quick meta-analysis for pretty much every challenge, it seems like, to the uh, the Modern Magic subreddit. That's where I grabbed a couple of the uh, the notes here. Really helped me get a shortcut, make sure that I was getting the right data uh, pretty early in the day today. So Bam saying thank you if you're out there. We appreciate you. Let's start with the top eight of this Modern Challenge. We had eight decks in this top eight. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> they were all different, which is good. Um, we had Mono Red Prowess piloted by Hovi DW. That is Dylan Hovi, well-known SCG grinder. Uh, Blue Red Prowess by Darth Kid, frequent MTGO and boss Darth Kid uh, at Alejandro MFDez on Twitter. We had Five Color Scape Shift, Five Color Scape Shift from Bob the Dog, who is Gaben Seif. Is that right? Uh, yep. Amulet Titan by Oli. Oh, yeah. Green White Vizier by Gideon Ravensword, which is my Dungeons and Dragons characters' names. Uh, <laughs> we had Black Green Elves by notable cousin of Stan's Tundislav. Tundislav is back. Tundislav. Tundislav, uh, well known, uh, also Magic Online player with a gigantic resume. Uh, I'm looking up their name really quick. I forgot to write it down. Antonin Brenis, Tundislav. Uh, Black White Hammer by Chanzito and Green White Heliod by DJ BMPPWNS. I think that is like some leet talk that I'm not prepared to try to pronounce. <laughs> D- DJ Bitmap Pones. Pones. <laughs> Love it. It's good. Pon- do, people, do people use Pones anymore? That, I don't think so. That was from when I was like 30 and now I'm 40. I can't imagine kids like that anymore. Dave, you're like 42, right? Mm, I am 42. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Oh, we missed my, we missed my birthday. Don't forget that. I'm I'm 41. I'm old. I'm a man. I'm 40. Uh, Shane, happy birthday! Sorry we missed it last week in our haze. Yeah, oh, man, it was it was a it was a bumpy one. So how do you feel? How are your knees? Uh, <laughs> my knees are surprisingly decent these past this past year plus. Feel very warm today. It's cooking here in Denver. I didn't get to talk about the weather, so I got to sneak that in. Thank you. All right, so this top eight was a mix of creature combo, aggro, and a single. Big mana mid-range deck, I guess you might call it. So we had three entries from the aggro tempo space. Blue-red prowess, obosh prowess, and hammer time. These decks are pretty close to stock, but I had a couple things I wanted to talk about with each of them. So the obosh prowess list by Dylan Hovey, um, I think it put a little bit of um, rest, like this event too, that put to rest a little bit the idea that red-white prowess has just kind of become better than the other prowess builds. There were certainly lots of different prowess decks in this event, which we'll talk about later. This deck has a single blister coil weird in it for prowess creature number nine, which is nice, and also has three blast zones main, which is not something I think that I've seen in the Obosh list necessarily. Could be wrong. Three seems like a lot of blast zones. I imagine that they might be pretty good in the mirror, though, if that's what you were trying to do with them. Yeah, that's that's a lot of zones. This sideboard is out of this world. We got four Relic of Progenitus, four Rampaging Ferocidon, and four Pillage. 
and plus two Cosmox return. Yeah, hey, that's how, that's how you do a sideboard. You're just <laughs> like, I know what I lose to, and I'm not losing to it. Yeah, like you you try to Heliod me, friend. I've got four rampaging for Asadons. Exactly. What what I think is interesting about this deck too, besides the sideboard, is like it's not how I would design it in the dark. You know what I mean? There's four Firebolt, which is a card I honestly forgot. Like it's just it's a Modern Horizons single red mana sorcery that deals two damage to any target. It's a bad shock uh, with four and a red flashback. So it's kind of just like you know used. What's good about it is it can hit creatures as well as your opponent and the incidental potential flashback of course but then you're like well okay i understand wanting to clear creatures out but there's also three flame slash which is effectively mostly dead unless you're sort of like able to pump up your own creatures before and then like flame slash your own thing which is feasible at times i imagine uh so yeah i just think it's like there's no lava spike it's just the kind of thing where it's like maybe with a creature heavy metagame you have to be interacting with creatures and not just your opponent yeah i mean i think that this is pretty typical of these obosh builds both firebolt and flame slash are generally in this deck but it is weird to see them because of the reasons that you you outlined they can be bad efficient and they can are like poor like have bad card efficiency in the case of firebolt or just be dead sometimes in the case of flame slash so certainly um certainly something to keep in mind there i mean this is the kind of deck where the engine is really it's kind of like prowessy mid-range right you get season pyromancer you get you get your bone crusher giants you get two for ones out of those and kind of go from from there and of course always on the back of some four main deck blood moons this is the deck that won the tournament by the way we'll come back to that in a, in a minute uh blue red prowess from darth kid uh the most interesting thing to me about this particular list is is it the four expressive iteration certainly is so Everett last week said he thought that expressive iteration was maybe just better than light up the stage and expressive iteration and darth kid decided to completely swap those out in this particular build so it's four expressive iteration zero light up the stage which i think is really cool and interesting and i cannot wait to try it myself um, and see where it goes you know it's usually not too hard to enable light up the stage in uh, in prowess, but there's some tan, you know, you get to look at three cards with this. You get to put one on the bottom and just filter one out. You get to, um, play a land off of it, which you also get to play off a of light at the stage and you get to play it pre-combat if you want to, for some reason as well. So there is a lot of like kind of benefits here. The deck is also still running a couple of vapor snags, which is something that's gotten more stock when blue red prowess over the last few months. You know, at one point in time, I had mentioned that it was a good way to enable light up the stage. Guess what? You can still play vapor snag without caring about enabling light up the stage. It's nice to just bounce big creatures. Hammer time, the other aggro deck that was in the top eight. The only thing that was super interesting to me about this one is that this particular list was running two dark confidant, and I have not seen that in hammer time quite yet seems like a cool way to get a little bit of extra card advantage out of the deck uh when you don't quite have time to set up your luris luris bobble package yeah why not i mean everything's cheap by and large there's a lot of zeros i mean why not yeah you really don't have a ton of risk of drawing something that's going to ding you hard for for life with confidant so the question is just really i guess is there space to fit it in there with the quote-unquote combo it looks like there is Okay, so that was the aggro contingent in the top eight. Creature combo, there were four decks that I would call creature combo decks in this top eight. Uh, Green-White Heliod, haven't seen much from this deck in the last couple of weeks, but I will note that this, while this was a stock list, there was also another Heliod deck in ninth, so one person just missed the top eight with his Heliod. 
uh, green white vizier also a stock stock version of the deck although this is the slightly lesser known variant where they run four postmortem lunge main which comes up occasionally uh, sometimes they run it sometimes they don't this is that one yeah this is one of those decks that i think just because of the existence of heliod that it's a little bit underrepresented in terms of its probably just sort of its raw power level but then the question is of course like why play this over heliod and i think there's some benefits there when it's like i want to play this powerful creature combo strategy but i know that people are gunning for life gain and i don't care about life gain i finale of devastation i kill them with walking ballista i make my stuff uh plus 20 plus 20 and just trample over them kind of thing or give them haste and just go around them so there's some options there and then the there's a sub question of why not both like you can just you can sort of you can play elements of both of these decks together and i know uh chat staple mickey has has done that in the past and so i think there's some there's some options there but i think this deck's good absolutely okay and then the next creature combo deck amulet titan i kind of think this is a creature combo deck less so than the other or more so than the other versions of titan this is your i'm gonna make a giant one and double strike you yada 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 this is a stock list uh and the final one was black green elves which i would say is stock for what is stock right now just keep in mind that uh this deck is now running realm walker and also elvish Warmaster main the most interesting thing to me about this deck was for Leyline of vitality in the side stand this was this is a deck that you like to play this is played by your cousin to a top eight berth have you ever tried Leyline of vitality in in the modern version of black green elves nope no, I didn't even really know this card existed. It's not the green ley line that I'm most familiar with. And what ley line does is it grades your creatures plus O plus one. And whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control, you may gain one. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Did I write down the wrong card? No, you're right. It's ley line of <laughs> oh, vitality. Line of vitality. Okay. So yeah. my brain was thinking of the of the of the other one. Of the, the one uh, that the, the one that makes mana. Right. Okay, what is this card doing here? Mistaken deck registration. You, you know what? Here's my here's my theory. One of the weakest matchups for elves is prowess because lava dart is a pain in the butt, and maybe this is one of the ways you beat that deck instead of using something like Shaper Sanctuary. Mm-hmm. I mean, it takes your your one drops out of lava dart range if you get it set up properly. So there you go. Okay, and then the last deck in the top eighth was uh, Gabe Nassif on five-color Scape Shift, which I guess is Nivish mid-rangeish combo-ish sort of-ish kind of deck. Uh, I don't know where where you guys classify this, but it is sort of like a value deck with a combo finish if you want to take it that way. It's a cool take on on Bring to Light. There's no Niv here. It's just the uh, the Scape Shift version where you can go for Valakut kill. You've got Omnath in here where you can go for a kill. You know, use that as like value creatures. Only one of those. You can got you have Valky. It's running Elvish Reclaimer and Flagstones of Trocare, so you can do that whole plan. Um, a lot of interesting angles, I think, for playing this good, good lands deck. Okay, so as I mentioned, Dylan Hovey uh, won on Mono Red Prowess. On Twitter, he had some interesting things to say. It was cool to see a nice, um, good kind of like take on some of his thoughts about the deck. He said that he likes this version of Prowess because Bone Crusher Giant is so good in the Prowess Mirrors. He said this version of the deck is the nut right now. Prowess Mirrors are a joke. For this version see me below and it's a picture of the guy looking at the other girl meme with me 
Bone Crusher Giants, the new girl, and Luris is the old one. Remember that meme from last summer? Fun times. Um, he also likes against Heliod. I imagine that's just for kind of like a speed and burst potential off of Obosh to kind of catch yourself up. You also have a lot of creature kill in this deck, so I think that helps as yeah. well. And then he felt like it had good game against Prowess, Shadow, and Tron. So lots of ways uh. to interact. Tron, you know... Uh, you got Hammer four main deck moons. Blood Moon. Yeah. <laughs> four more land destruction spells on the side. Like, yep. I believe it. Yeah. Last couple of things he had to say. I think on. I could beat him with it. I've got him. Look out for my Worm Coil engine, bro. Um, couple last things that Dylan had to say on Twitter about this deck. He has a nice short thread or a couple different threads where he talks about what it was what he was thinking about playing this one thing that felt awesome today during the challenge was that bone crusher blood moon covered me against two-thirds of the format the other one-third just isn't in modern right now i highly recommend this deck tomorrow and he says that the the main bad matchup is a bad matchup against combo because quote it's a turn to a turn one and a half slower than other prowess decks i don't think dredge is that good if i could play tomorrow i'd add some more graveyard hate I also bet the two-color control decks would be hard. So interesting couple of thoughts about Red Prowess. Red Prowess, of course, is a deck that occasionally, you know, has been storming up the trophy leaderboards in modern leagues. Uh, M. Hayashi has put a bunch of time into playing decks a lot like this and has frequently been uh, up towards the top with it. But uh, so that's the top eight. And then real quick, top 32. So thanks again to Bamzing. I pulled this top 32 meta directly from their article on reddit so go check them out or check them out at bamzing underscore mtg on twitter top two decks in this metagame four five color scapeshift decks and four eldrazi tron decks surprise surprise given the way that all the rest of the top eight went this these were the top two decks what do you think Uh, so like Five color escape shift is basically what like control to the combo finish type stuff, and Eldrazi Tron is just still doing matter reshaper on turn three. Well, it's also doing chalice on like I think. Yeah, I mean that's always good. that. That's the real juice. Agree. Yeah, it's mostly there to kind of I think it's a foil against prowess. And thanks for bringing that up, Stan, because the next tranche of decks is seven prowess decks in a row. It would be the next most played deck was three red-white prowess, two mono-red prowess, and two blue-red prowess decks for a total of seven prowess decks in the top 32. Interestingly, red-white decks trying to get worked out, but the those finished in 16th, 17th, and 22nd place. Um, so Clever, Clever Lumamancer is making a bit of a splash, but didn't quite get there for the top eight conversion. Um there's still some flex spots flying around in this red-white deck that I thought were interesting. Some of them are running Leonin Lightscribe. Some of them are running Kiln Fiend. Remember Kiln Fiend? Uh, just doing the things that they do. And then uh, with blue-red and mono-red doing both a little bit better than white-red, it made me wonder a little bit if they win the mirrors a bit more than the red deck can. Um, and then Heliod was next with a two-of and Dredge also with the two of. And then after that, the rest of the top 32 is one-off decks for 13 single decks. Didn't feel like there was anything too spicy in a lot of these builds. A lot of these are pretty stocky. There's occasional kind of Strixhaven cards popping up, but nothing too, too big other than kind of stuff we've talked about in the past. So what do you think? Meta like this, what do you think you would want to play right now in, in modern Feels kind of open to me. Of course, I'm sure that I would pick up a flavor of prowess just because it's the deck that I know how to play. You don't need me to say that on the show anymore. But uh, what do you guys think? Yeah, this is this is the kind of meta that I think is still pretty wide open, like you said, Dave. Which is like sort of play 
if you want to win a tournament, maybe play what you think is like not being targeted right now. And maybe let's say like for me, I think if I was to play a league tomorrow, I'd probably play dredge because I think it's picking up some steam with thrilling discovery. I think the mana looks a little bit stretched. Like you have stuff like singleton blood crypt to get that black mana. You might need to hard cast your creatures and like, or even maybe like a creeping chill and like you have like a basic mountain because you might want something to get, you know, if you get pathed or like if someone field, field of ruins you or something like that, or like you have stopping ground and sacred foundries to get you into the mana of the spells you need. I think it probably works well enough. Like with the rainbow lands and whatnot, I, I'm not saying dredge is the best deck, but I think it's the one I'm the most interested in assessing what its power level is right now. And because it hasn't taken over since the printing of Thrilling Discovery, I think that there is an option where, like, if, unless you're a player that's as in the know as uh, Dylan Hovey, who's like, hey, I think I might need to play a little bit more Graveyard Hate, then there's maybe an opening there. I think that um, what was interesting about this particular tournament is that there wasn't a lot of control present, I don't think. And that's probably what, like, with Better Foresight, I think that's a deck that potentially could have done really um you know, especially based on some of the things that Dylan said about control being a problematic matchup. You know, so maybe maybe some batter skulls is is what we're looking for. Path and batter skulls, maybe even a just guy control where you got path, batter skulls, and lightning bolt. So Stan's ready to go the next level here. Yeah, I want to hold up my mana instead of spending it all every turn. Nice. Boring. All right. Well. Next up, we're going to take a deep look into what may or may not be the best deck in Standard and what may or may not be the best deck in Historic, Blue-Black Rogues. Stay with us. And we're back. Historic Rogues. It's like the Standard deck, but better. (laughs) Succinct. Close out. <laughs> so this is a somewhat unique deck dive for us since we are talking about a deck that's still very much based on a standard shell that continues to see play in that format today. I, I can't think of another time we've actually done something like that. And I likewise can't think of a time where something like that was actually true. So as I can't t- either, actually. Yeah. And, and, you know, as usual, we'll talk a little bit about the deck's history, you know, what it's trying to do the core and packages within the deck, tips and tricks when it comes to gameplay, sideboarding, matchups, uh, and our own personal experiences, starting with history. Um, And I think it's impossible to talk about this deck's history without really diving into what it has done in and for Standard. The earliest version of the Standard deck that I could find was from September 19th, 2020, where it came in 21st place in a Standard Challenge the first weekend after the release of Zendikar Rising. Wow, ancient history, all the way back at September 21st, or September 19th, 2020. Mm-hmm. Feels like a long time ago. Yeah, I think I was on my honeymoon. Well, so you missed this when it was, <laughs> when it was fresh. Yeah, I, I wasn't in that tournament. And since that point, you know, after the release of Zendikar Rising, it's essentially become a standard staple, undeniably one of the premier strategies in the format among both pros and grinders alike. It was even among the most recent batch of pre-constructed challenger decks for anyone that wants a leg up getting this deck together, either for standard or maybe even to start porting it into historic paper. I don't know. Pioneer, go for it. You know what's weird is I've been seeing those like pre-con decks at Target recently, and I was like, I, I never remember seeing these. And all of a sudden, there's just like, oh, they're, they're all over the place. They didn't just get printed, right? Like, they've been out for a while, right? I 
I'm just seeing some dead stock. No, maybe there was a second printing, it's a popular product potentially. Some good cards in, in the latest round of Challenger decks. Although the first true rogues that saw play in the standard deck were printed in Throne Devil Drain, namely Brazen Bower and Rankle Master of Pranks, the strategy didn't really exist as a true tribal synergy as it is now until Zendikar Rising introduced Soaring Thought Thief, Merfolk Windrobber, Nighthawk Scavenger, and Zareth San the Trickster. And we'll talk more about some of these cards in more detail later on in the creature section of the dive. Especially especially Zerasan. Yeah, I know. Worth noting, these days the historic deck only runs three main deck creatures, unlike the standard version, which is much more aggressive and board-based. Likewise, Thieves Guild Enforcer, aka Black Delver of Secrets, was printed in Core 21, which was also prior to Zendikar Rising. That card is good. Spoilers. I love that card. It did not take much longer for the deck to make an appearance in Historic, as porting the standard list with upgrades from both Jumpstart and Amonkhet. The earliest Historic list I saw was from October 2020, so about a month later, when it finished in 25th place in an MTGA Zone-sponsored tournament. If you haven't checked out the MTGA Zone website, great source for arena content. Unlike the standard list, the deck features Una's Blackguard, which is a fairy rogue from Morningtide, reprinted in Jumpstart along with Thoughtseize that was included in Amonkhet Remastered, and Curious Obsession, which had appeared in the deck on and off prior to the changes that uh, were made possible with Mystical Archive. Fast forward a few weeks ago, Rogues basically on the fringes of historic play, in my mind, occupying a similar role to Mono Blue Tempo with a fairly consistent build, but no true stock list, since... In my opinion, its relative power level generally kept it from establishing a truly dominant position in the metagame. And then, and then Strixhaven came out and mm-hmm. everything changed. Weird. Both for Historic why, why? and for this deck. Am I right? Yeah, I think you're right, Dave. Yeah, I mean, cards like Harmonize, Electrolyze, Manatithe, Stone Rain. So Demir quickly became Teamer so that he could run could run electrolyze or could run uh harmonize and electrolyze it's perfect yeah i mean this deck picked up three really notable cards from the historic the mystical archive in memory lapse inquisition of kozilek and brainstorm not to mention that the metagame itself changed around in a way that i think made it a lot more favorable to attempt to play decks like this for sure yeah and and, you know i mentioned that there wasn't a stock list and it was kind of a fringy deck that appears to have be very different nowadays and you know it's just been a couple weeks since the release of archive and and this deck has become more of a player in the format in that period but we're just seeing a lot of consistency across builds and it does start to feel like there is a stock historic rogues list that is somewhat unique from what the standard decks are trying to do all it all it takes is super well-known pro and blue black fairies player yuta takahashi to pick up Demir Rogues in historic win a tournament with it for five of win a 5k with it last week for everybody to stop and go oh I guess if one of the uh, archetype masters of this style of deck is interested it's probably time for everybody else to start paying attention what's fascinating to me is that unlike many decks like this in magic's history people are still winning with this like normal normal folks like like me 
and people on untapped where the win rate is quite high. This is not like a, a, a pro level deck where it takes grinding out every ounce of value out of everything. Like I think you can play this to, I think you can play this middling and still get a lot of wins. Like I think that this is one of the, one of the decks that you can get the absolute most out of with knowing the meta, knowing how to play the deck, knowing how to use every card in it. And you can really maximize that. But I think it's, it's a, this style of deck still being fairly straightforward to win with is uh, says a lot about it. And I think it speaks to why it's so popular. Yeah. And so about a week ago, when we were on the show, this all happened. We talked about it a little bit. And then we were all chatting about this afterwards. And we were all just like, yeah, I want to try this deck. I'm going to try this deck. And then we were like, we're all going to play this deck. And then it was just like, well, now we have to just talk about it this week on the show. So this week brought to you by Yuta Takahashi. Thank you so much for your services. Exactly. Um, so let's, if you don't know much about this deck, let's talk about what it's trying to do. Uh, and I'd say it's pretty fair to call Rogue's a uh, traditional tempo style deck. You're going to start by playing probably like a cheap threat on turn one, perhaps. You might have a little bit of maybe hand interaction on turn one, depending on the matchup, but you're getting some stuff down that doesn't cost a lot. Everything costs one and two for your creatures. And then you're going to protect that threat and stop your opponent's game plan with your counter magic, with your removal spells, with your hand disruption. And then as these games tend to go long, which is kind of the nature of these low-to-the-ground tempo decks, you get access to card selection and card advantage. Uh, so you want to keep your hand full, right? And keep your hand full of cards that are is stopping what your opponent is trying to do because they're going to keep drawing cards too. Weird how that works. And then Luris, I think, is so important to the way this deck works, and I'm going to talk about it here as well as later on in the episode. You only have 12 main deck creatures, right? and they don't have a lot of inherent power. And so getting them back with Luris after you've been burying the opponent and you put them in top deck mode, you're able to really efficiently take over the end game because your stuff's in the cost a lot. So you're getting it back out of the graveyard, you're keeping up counter magic, you're keeping up interaction, and then you're just finishing the opponent off. What do you think? Is there anything that we missed in this brief summary of how this deck plays out typically? I mean, I guess the only thing I would say about this deck is that the other thing to keep in mind is that a good portion of your threats are have flash two-thirds of them do eight of the creatures soaring thought thief which i don't know why there's a hyphen between thought and thief thought thief weird and thieves guild enforcer uh, both have flash and so it's another one of these decks where you get a chance to leave up your mana um leave up your interaction and play your threats only when it makes sense and only when you can do it in an advantageous way. So this deck does a really, really good job of combining some efficient threats with disruption, all at most at instant speed, and also with card advantage that you get to play at instant speed as well, which is the other thing that is really surprising here outside of Luris. Um, so it really kind of touches a bunch of different things that decks can do in this kind of vein. And I think it's like one of those things that sometimes doesn't always come together for good tempo decks like this. Yeah, I think the way I sort of summarize this deck is that it just gives you options. It gives you timing options, it gets you play options, and that's part of its inherent power and part of its inherent fun, I think, is that it, it gives you options and it and because of that, the opponent 
is having to diagnose what you're representing, what you could do. And oftentimes, unless you're, unless you're playing against people who are very experienced, like if you're just on kind of a normal platinum gold level ladder opponent, like they're, they're going to be wanting to play fast games. They're not going to try to think through every play and that gets you a lot of advantage where like, they're not going to be like, okay, well, if they have this and if they have this, well, they can do this. They're just like, well, I'm going to cast this. And if they counter it, they counter it. And I think that's an advantage this deck gets too. Absolutely. All right. Let's, let's talk about the creatures, the thieves in this deck. Cause I don't know if you guys noticed, but all of these cards are burglars starting with Merfolk wind robber, blue mana for one, one flyer. It's a flying man with more text when it deals combat damage to a player that player mills a card and then you may sacrifice merfolk wind robber draw a card activate this ability only if an opponent has eight or more cards in their graveyard yeah in the early game it's perhaps your weakest creature though the card has a lot more utility in the late game when its ability is online and you can start to draw cards especially after declaring it as a blocker yeah however this card is super important (laughs) on turn one because I think this is the most powerful creature. In in a weird way, it, it is because so it enables so many other cards from your core strategy and uh, makes your opponent feel so so bad when they have to spend a removal spell on it to get rid of it, which isn't all the time. But um, those mills really are meaningful for turning on so many things in this deck. Yeah, exactly. Like it just gets your drawn on the locks online and like your other synergies going where if you, you want to have eight or more cards in the opponent's graveyard, like it's just it's super valuable to be able to fly over and get that chip damage in. It's I think this card having flying makes it playable at all. I don't think that this would be anything that you would be like, well, here's my one one. And because like the instant your opponent plays anything, it can't really attack. But with flying, it's getting over. It's doing the chip damage. It's milling. So if you guys have a watery grave, no other one mana spells except this and Thieves Guild Enforcer, you're not leading with this. 10 out of 10 times I'm leading with this. Oh yeah, 100%. Yeah. For a couple of different reasons. One is it doesn't have flash, so you really you really want to play yes. it before before kind of stuff gets going or any of your interactive spells would be online. And the other thing is that it attacking makes Thieves, Thieves Guild Enforcer better. And so you want to try to get as close as you can to having enough cards in the graveyard for uh, Enforcer to be a 3-2 before playing it, I think, as well. So this card is like, I want to, my in my pattern of playing the deck anyway, and I didn't run as hot as you guys did. I, I had a winning record. But um, I, I this is fine. It's just like, I'm just going to play this on turn one and say go. For sure. Let's talk about the other one drop, Thieves Guild Enforcer. Single black for a 1-1 flash. When Enforcer or another rogue enters the battlefield under your control, each opponent mills two cards. And then as long as an opponent has eight or more cards in their graveyard, Enforcer gets plus two, plus one, and has death touch. Pulls out that poison blade. Very pricky. The blade of enforcing. Plus two, plus two, poison saving throw. Yeah, card rules, right? I mean, the... It, it becomes more powerful fairly quickly. Uh, it's good on defense. The ETB and the uh, triggered ability are both really valuable in this deck. Um, there's all sorts of like tricky stuff you can do with it because, like Dave said, it has flash. So like this is kind of getting out ahead of the tips and tricks area. But like, let's say your opponent says, "Well, I've got two cards in my graveyard, and my opponent has. If even if they have drawn on the lock, I'm clear." And then it's like, "Well." 
I've got three mana available. I flash this in. You get two more cards in that graveyard. And then you're able to use your draw on the lock. There's just all sorts of, again, options that a card like this gets you because of the way it interacts with all the other parts of your deck. Last creature in the main is Soaring Thought Thief. Blue-black for a 1-3 Flash Flyer. As long as an opponent has eight or more cards in their graveyard. Rogues you control get plus one, plus zero. And then whenever one or more rogues you control attack, each opponent mills two cards. Notably, this is a flyer because the creature in the art is attached to a rope. (laughs) (laughs) Is it on like a kite? Yeah, there might be a kite or a balloon. uh, I think it's like repelling off of a a floating rock. One of Zendikar's many floating rocks and Mm -hmm. land formations. Oh, yeah, yeah. It could be a real up situation where there's just a lot of balloons attached to them in a... And an old, an angry old man nearby is saying, he's, he's got a sad out. backstory. Yeah. So this is both a lord and a lieutenant, right? It helps get your mill plan online. It buffs your board. It has evasion, which makes it a reliable beater thanks to flying. And the flash itself lets you hold up interaction in addition to this creature. Yeah. Three toughness is pretty nice. Like if you're really on the back foot, it can block a few early threats. You know, it can block like a burning tramissary or like a, um, the, the two-two rogue on the other side, you know that thing. But yeah, it can it can block a two-two. You know, fine, who cares? It's good. But you typically, I'm I'm hoping not to use this on defense as much as possible because three toughness does get outclassed pretty fast, and you don't want it to die to a a shock or a stomp or something like that often. Yeah, there are lots of times where people attack into places though when they um with like an X one where they don't have mana up and they're yeah. they're just kind of like oh okay block. You know, and then yeah. they just kind of like miss it. So there, it comes up not infrequently, I would say. But again, like the main thing here is just your threats have flash. And so you get to you get to wait until the right time to play them. They're tricky thieves. And, um, you know, keep up your drown in the lock, keep up your memory lapses and kind of go uh, go through your game plan that way. Now, there are very much not a lot of creatures in this deck, right? 12 threats is pretty low. Um, so having ways to bring them back is super important. And that brings us to the companion that goes with this deck, Luris. Right? So Luris, we all we all know Luris. Is this a new card? Not a new card. Luris of the this is Luris of the Dream Den. Maybe you've heard of them before. Um also with an, a weirdly placed hyphen. They buy back all your creatures that might have been removed. So it lets you draw a bunch of cards with Merfolk Wind Robber, which is the secret Mishra's bauble of the deck later in the game. And it can gain you a bit of life, which is great. Comes in handy all the time. Um, Luris is a foundational card of all the formats that it's in, and this is just a deck that is really set up to take advantage of it. Lets you run a low threat count and a higher action count and go from there. You know, before we get out of this little creature section, I just had a thought I want to run past you guys. Yeah. Would this deck exist if Lightning Bolt was in the format? Hmm. Doesn't this feel like exhibit A for why Lightning Bolt would be like format warping? Do you think primarily just because of like the efficiency and the fact that like it would trade up for Soaring Thought Thief? Yeah, just that it kills every single creature for one mana. I mean, Shock does Shock doesn't kill Thought Thief, it kills everything else, but Shock being 50% worse than Lightning Bolt, I think is also significant. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's hard to say. Like this deck has a lot of a lot of counter magic. It has a lot of other things as well. So it's hard to say. I mean, given that Soaring Thought Thief does not buff t- 
toughness, that might be a, a reason as well. But yeah, I mean, this is of course just theory crafting, but I feel like this is the kind of deck where like if your opponent is spending a lightning bolt on your creatures, then you're probably pretty happy with it. And then as you keep making land drops and you have efficient interaction for what they're trying to do, then you'll probably just take over the end game. So I'm not sure that like lightning bolt would be the main answer against this deck, but yeah, it certainly wouldn't be great. Yeah. Oh, well, those are the creatures. Now there's 25 instants and sorceries. Let's start with one of the new ones. Brainstorm. Never heard of it. Is this new? Yeah, it's a single blue instant. Draw three cards, then put two cards from your hand on top of your library in any order. Oh, you get to, you get to set up your future draws. That's right. Technically a cantrip. I don't think anyone would argue with that. Sometimes lets you protect your hand from opposing hand disruption. Uh, it can also help you shuffle away dead cards with something like Fabled Passage. So if you're flooding out and you've got a Fabled, this is a nice way to potentially mitigate that situation. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot I want to talk about Brainstorm with you all later. It's such a different card than I think many of our listeners are used to playing with, including myself. Like I think there's just a lot going on here, and I think it would be good just to kind of have like a little Brainstorm clinic I see how bad our takes on a brainstorm because, as you know, brainstorm is one of the most discussed cards in yeah. Magic ever. And so, be most curious skill to see. testing cards, I, I think. I, I will say, definitely skill testing here. This deck, I don't think this is like this is not really a brainstorm deck. You know what I mean? Like this, you get to run this card for value in this deck, and it's good here. And I think that it belongs here, and you should run it, and all those things. It's not the same thing as running it in a deck like is it phoenix or something like that where you're you are using it more so to set up future turns and you know i just think that this is just a, a deck that is running brainstorm for value and historic instead of maybe some of the more complex things that you can do with it but excellent card powerful card it is what it is so i would not run it of course it's just I don't know what I you're don't saying, know this Dave. Is, maybe, we'll, yeah. <laughs> maybe we'll get to it later. Yeah, maybe we can save it for the, the Brainstorm Clinic. Yeah. Next spell is Fatal Push. Notably okay card. Yeah. A playable removal spell. I think it currently sees play over Blood Chief's Thirst since it is an instant speed. And the deck has eight cards main that can set up Revolt on Demand between Fabled Passage as well as Merfolk Wind Robber. Pairs pretty well with counter magic, but potentially be replaced with other removal spells in different metagames, I think. Yeah. Yeah. This is a card that sometimes is so frustratingly bad and other times is so, so good, but it's just like, well, you just got to run it. <laughs> it's too good. You know, since the addition of Mystical Archive, we've been seeing two to four Inquisition of Kozilek main. It's your early hand disruption, punches holes in your opponent's plan. It can protect your creatures from removal, get early threats out of the way, and generally clear the path for whatever you're trying to do in a game. Coupled with anywhere between zero to four copies of Thoughtseize, see my notes above. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the interesting thing here is to see how many people have decided they don't want to run Thoughtseize as much anymore in a number of different decks. But in particular, uh, you know, the, the deck that Yuta Takahashi played last week, four Inquisition of Kozilek's zero thought sees anywhere in this deck, which is 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 interesting to see. I, I wonder if that's just a hedge against aggro or if you just don't really need it. But um, all of these are important and good cards in this deck, and they lend that extra dimension of hand disruption to it that notably other tempo decks in Historic, like Blue, do not have access to without the black. So 
And speaking of cards that you get access to because you're running black, we've got four Drown in the Lock, which is just it's a staple of the deck. It's perhaps why the deck exists. It's a it's a counter spell. It's a removal spell. Uh, it reads it's an instant blue black. Choose one counter target spell with converted mana cost, aka mana value, less than or equal to the number of cards in its controller's graveyard, or destroy target creature with mana value less than or equal to the number of cards in its controller's graveyard. So this is probably the reason that you play this rogue package at all, because they get this card online and they get it online early. Like a lot of other decks that maybe would want to play draw on the lock are like, well, if my opponent's fetching, which we don't have in historic, if my if I'm removing their creatures, if we're if they're filling their graveyard pretty quickly, then my draw on the lock becomes valuable. In this deck, it just happens because of the things you're doing and the creatures that you're playing. And my take is that Drawn on the Lock is just kind of broken in this deck. Like, a lot of people despise Claim the Firstborn in a deck like Sacrifice, right? And a lot of complaints about how powerful it is and how just because of how synergistic it is with this powerful deck of uh, Rakdos or Jun Sack. Drowned, I think, is easily on a similar power level, if not better, in this deck. It's doing so much for so little. If your game plan is ticking along at all, then this is basically counterspell and terminate. Yeah, and that's that's absurd. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for no for no mana cost uh, premium either. It's not like it costs three to have that yeah. modality. It's still two. Um, I've had some interesting things come up with this deck the last couple of days with this card in particular. With people, yeah, um, people running like uh, cling to dust main to be able to remove cards from their own graveyard, I think, to be able to turn Drown off and make all of my rogues worse. So it's it's been an interesting thing. And when you get in that situation, uh, Drown the Locker is a super bummer sometimes, but but someone's <laughs> also maybe playing suboptimally to turn your Drowns off. So maybe you win in the long term in that sense, but the card is great. Yeah, it's Counterspell, <laughs> mostly. And Terminate, Dave. Yeah, Terminate too. We. But we all love two mana removal, but this is a two mana counter spell. And guess what? We're going to talk about another two mana counter spell right now, too. This deck runs four memory laps, of course, um, which is a card that people are learning to hate again, all over again. It's been kind of missing since the 90s, and now it's back. Yeah, the, the art on the original version is definitely a 90s magic card. Yep. The 90s magic card is an interrupt. Yes. Sure is. <laughs> and I mentioned kind of offhandedly last week when I was asking Spike about like the ways to play Memory Lapse. And I said, uh, you know, I was used to playing uh, Memory Lapse in a deck full of flying men and unstable mutations and stuff. That's just kind of what this deck is in, in some ways with, with better spells than what I had access to back in the day. But, um, you know, this card, when you are an aggressive deck that wants to just buy a little bit of time can be amazing and backbreaking and it takes care of stuff at any cmc or mv or whatever we're calling it these days and just lets you attack in for another turn with maybe your uh quite large soaring thought thief and thieves guild enforcers to just get that last couple of points of damage in yeah dave not all of our listeners are as steeped in magic lore as you so memory lapse one in the blue counter target spell put it on top of its owner's library yeah. That's it. Yeah. This card rules. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's super rules. <laughs> it's it's so easy to cast. It's it's so generally useful. You get that optionality. You know, when when this card was spoiled in the archive and we found out it was going to be in historic, I think there was some initial debate about remand, 
right? What's a better card, this or remand? And and there was like an LSV tweet about how memory lapse is the perfect historic power level. I, I actually replied to him and he replied to me very generously, just asking like, what about remand? And he's like, remand is just way too strong for historic and pioneer. And now in this deck, I'm just like, is remand actually stronger than this? Because I feel like it's just insane here. It's two mana counterspell. Yeah, and I think it's it's better, especially in this deck, because uh, of the synergy with getting an attack in with either yes. Soaring Thought Thief or Merfolk Wind Robber, where you get to memory lapse something on their turn, and then if you get an attack in with one of your guys, you just mill it away. Yeah, or even or even just play another rogue. Yeah. Yeah, they lose it. So then it really just is counterspell instead of any kind of temple play at all. Yeah, that's what kind of gets into the the options I was talking about. Like, let's let's say just early on, it's like a it's like a somewhat worse remand, right? Like you counter that explore, you're effectively time walking them, like you mentioned, or like you counter a good spell, and then you want to mill it away with that like flashed in rogue or that attack, or once you have even like more interaction post board, you can counter that expensive non creature spell. You don't mill it. Then they recast it and like you negate it or you mystical dispute it this time. Like you have all these ways to make your opponent's life miserable. That is is kind of specific with memory lapse, even over remand in this deck, especially. Yeah. And I do think that making them lose a draw is to me, it's a lot more powerful than returning the card to their hand personally because they don't get a chance to cast it again the same again on the same turn you know one of the things that's most annoying with remand is if you remand someone's card and they have enough mana they just do it again but this is like oh you you have to wait till next turn at the worst case scenario that fatal push is gone so you can even use it to counter cheap spells and just buy yourself a time and like cross your fingers yeah and like usually you have like you have choices like let's say in the counter magic you're running right like let's say you have a hand of drown the lock and uh or mystical dispute or negate or memory lapse. And you're like, I would love for them to redraw this card. So like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna negate it this time. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna bounce this one and like, just, just make them use all their mana in ways that are, is much less effective for them. And yeah, that hurts. Cool. Let's talk about Agadim's awakening, which is frequently just a one, maybe a two of in these decks. X black, black, black for a sorcery return from your graveyard to the battlefield, any number of target creature cards that each have a different converted mana cost, X or less. So this is a great way to get Luris out of your graveyard if she gets answered and can really even be a three for one if you have Thought Thief and a one drop in your yard as well. In some matchups, you just play it as a land too because this is an MDFC where you can play it as a black source untapped if you pay three life. Yeah, and this is a card that I have loved across a number of different decks in Historic, but it's it's good here. You know, it is nice to be able to have a way to get Luris back occasionally, like you said, but it's totally fine just as an alternate Luris, basically, where you get a little bit more extension out of your cards and you get Thieves Guild and Sorcerer and Earth. Enforcer and Soaring Thought Thief back and try to just recover from a Wrath or, or whatever. It's a card that I feel like a lot of times people don't see coming still for some reason, but it's um it's like the perfect one of. How many times did y'all play a Graft Digger's Cage against an opponent and then hate yourself because you had this card? <laughs> like, I was just like, so many times I was like, oh, I could really get a lot of value out of this. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty used to that tension because of playing... Luris and Graf Digger's Cage both in Auras at different points yeah. in time. And so it's um 
it's just a choice you have to make when you're going into game two. Like, is it how much do I really need to have Luris this game versus how much do I need to turn off my opponent's graveyard? Like, I have no problems just bringing in Cage against like Arcanist and just being like, I don't care about Luris this game or, or yeah. Luris is just a 3 2 lifelinker this game. And that is fine um, because their recursion is so much better. Yeah, that's. I think we'll talk about that in sideboarding too. All right. We saved the best for last. The deck runs four copies of Into the Story, Modern Staple, and Grixis Aspiring Spike decks. Five blue, blue for an instant. That's expensive, Stan. However, it does cost three less if an opponent has seven or more cards in their graveyard. So this is not a rogues card. Otherwise, that would read eight. <laughs> So annoying keeping yeah. track of that stuff in this deck is just like who what oh, eh. totally. What does it do though? Yeah, so let's say they have the seven cards in their yard. This is two blue blue for an instant to draw four cards. Four cards. Four, Qu- Jerry. Quattro. Instant speed four mana draw four. Yeah, my gosh. It's so powerful that it's converted chain into a blue player. Like is this is this the most powerful spell I've ever cast? Like I'm, I'm not sure. Like that might be an exaggeration, but it feels like it when I'm casting it. Where it's just like you, know, your hand just is full of cards all of a sudden for four mana, instant speed. Like I mean, having too many sucks, but so does having too many treasure crews. Am I right? Yeah. Like this is this is such a good card. I'm constantly surprised that this card is an instant, yes. and that it uh, draws four cards. Because every time I do it, I'm like. Oh, here comes some a good number of cards. Oh, it's that many. <laughs> oh, like my hand is like there's nothing, and then all of a sudden there's there's a nice fan at the bottom of the screen. I'm like, it's not even like a little weak fan. It's a good fan. And you don't gotta put any back on top. You just drew them, buddy. Yeah. Yeah, card's amazing. You didn't even delve anything. It saves you so many times. Like this card is like the thing that that lets you go from the uh, from the early game where you probably can lose some of your creatures and not quite do enough damage to your opponent to be able to recover, come back, and go into the mid-late mid game, game strong. Now, there's all kinds of fun tricks that you get to do with this card because it's an instant, of course, so you just get to pick the right time to do it. You know, one of my favorite moves, of course, is to wait for someone to counter something on my turn and then cast it on my turn mm-hmm. when, when they have their shields down. So it's just you have all the options with this card, which is fantastic. You know, we, we mentioned that these games are long. We've kind of tiptoed around that fact. The games go so long that sometimes you can have six mana up. This card's online, and then you cast it to find an interactive spell where you can then, <laughs> like, play a uh, Drown in the Lock or a Memory Lapse uh, to, like, dig for counter magic or removal. Definitely true. I think there's an argument to be made that next to Drown in the Lock, this is one of the reasons that you play the Rogue's Creature Package in general just because it's such a powerful card advantage engine that while your cards need to do something, you are ultimately just drowning your opponent in card advantage, and that's essentially what wins you the game as you like get your little dinky beaters online eventually. Yeah, I do agree that it's extremely pow- powerful, extremely awesome. I said it might be the best spell I've ever cast in terms of the feel, but like it's also weird that sometimes I feel like four is too many because the games go so long. Mm-hmm. And it's like I don't I don't know if if four is always right because sometimes like my hand fills up with two or three of them and I know it's just bad RNG but at the same time this does get the argument where it's like you don't have to be you know playset tribal yeah uh, however 
at least like Stan said, you don't give up once you have this online. It's it's not like you give up the ability to cast this more than once. Like with Agadim's Awakening, yep. like if you if you've ever played a deck where you have multiple of those, like it, Shadow tends to run two or three Agadim's Awakenings, and it's mostly because it's Painland, you know, it bolts you. But sometimes you have hands where you're like, I have three Agadim's Awakening, and I will maybe cast it once. But with with uh, End of the Story, when you draw two, you generally, if your game plan is going okay, you can cast them both at least, which. It's nice and can help you, you know, rocket ahead of somebody. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the good cards to play with Brainstorm. You know, as Shane pointed out, like it's weak early. It's it's questionable and multiple. So it's a great card to tuck and maybe even shuffle away with an early Brainstorm. Yeah. One of my favorite plays. Um, you know, one of the other reasons why like having more multiples of it is is questionable is because I sometimes feel like I win after I cast the first one. And it's like, yeah. if I'm casting two of these, I'm probably just embarrassing my opponent. Yeah, I mean, there are games where you want every resource you can get, right? But yeah, I agree. It's the kind of thing where it's like, the first one is amazing, the second one is probably just gravy, and the third and fourth are maybe not needed. But then you always want to get probably one. So it's, I think this might be one of the cards that we see go down to three, but I would not be surprised if everyone keeps doing quite fine with a four of. It is, you know, because of this multiples thing we're talking about, it is one of the cards I'll sideboard out. Yeah, especially against fast matchups. Totally, yeah. And even if it's not a matchup where I feel like I'm not filling up their graveyard or they're they're shrinking their graveyard with escape creatures, like I don't feel guilty about going down to three or even two into the stories in in games two and three. Yeah, totally. All right, but as Shane uh, intimated a moment ago, this deck kind of is playset tribal, at least the Takahashi list, like the ones that have been floating around. You know, it's four of each of the three creatures. It's four of six different spells and an Agadim's Awakening. Even the lands are a playset of Watery Graves, a playset of Drawn Catacomb, a playset of Fabled Passage, and a playset of the Pathway with some basics and a Castle Lockthwain thrown in. It is four by four by four by four, which is always a really interesting thing to see because you kind of know what you're going to get <laughs> with this deck almost all the time. Yeah, it's consistent, if nothing. We're going to talk about sideboarding in a minute. Can we take a minute to chat about, you know, some of our experiences playing the deck? Yeah. The first thing I actually wanted to talk about that I don't think we actually have notes on here, though, is we talked a couple of times about this deck being long games. Mm -hmm. How long are we talking? My untapped tracking had a number of 15 to 20 minute matches, and I know that you, you you had some even longer than that, Dave. Yeah, I had like 20-minute, half-hour-long matches quite frequently with it. So this deck is weird in that you can have kind of like aggressive starts or you have kind of like, you know, you're killing with a, a creature, but the games take a while to play through, even for the fact that they there's not that many different cards. There's just so many different options with the cards that you're thinking and your opponent's thinking and kind of like it just added up really fast for me a lot of different times. I think it's cool. And I even had decks not that just went long in time, but like 10, 12, 15 turn games were not like that weird for me. I think I think it's this is one of the decks that you could probably could, could get faster at when you like you just recognize patterns more often. But for like me as a newer player for it, it's just like, how do I make the right choice all the time? And that's hard to do fast i'm looking at my untapped data right now my longest game against uh i can't tell if this is a mirror or blue black control if memory serves i think it was blue black control 
32 minutes. <laughs> for one game or one match? One match. One match. Yeah. Still. Yeah. Um, and I feel like against the average non-control opponent, like you're not winning before turn seven or eight. Like, Oh, yeah. It, Almost never. Yeah. Un- unless your opponent knows when to scoop, which, you know, happens. But in general, like this is a late game win, not only because you're so interactive, but because your creatures are so small. Yeah. Yeah. Although you do have those hands sometimes where you're like, my hand is two lands, two thieves, guild enforcer, one soaring th- thought thief, thief, and a drown in the lock and a memory lapse. And you're like, okay, so I'm just going to play out a bunch of enforcers and then play the soaring thought thief. And once there's two enforcers on the board and then they're going to be big because that's going to make two mill triggers. And then I'm going to have two mana up like basically all the time for a counter spell so you i definitely had a couple games like that where it was like whoa this is just like the fast version of rogues but it's definitely much rarer than taking the long the long view all right can we talk about some tips tricks hacks and synergies for sure first one dave i think you hinted at this earlier luris plus merfolk wind robber is mishra's bobble yeah yeah i mean that's the thing that really really makes this deck different than a lot of the other decks that I've seen with Luris. You know, the way that Luris is used in Modern is quite often in that package with Bobble. And a lot of times in Historic, you don't have access to that same idea where you can convert Luris's kind of like card advantage from playing replaying creatures into card advantage from drawing cards. And Windrobber does an incredible impression of that once you get pretty deep in the game for really cheap cost. Yeah, I, and I even think like Wind Robber is one of those creatures that makes it sneaky tough for opponents to attack because you can always sack it for value, especially if you have a Luris online. Like I think once you have that engine going, it starts to become very hard to lose uh, from the Merfolk side, and you know you don't have to attack with it. Like if 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 you have a bunch of card draw going on. You're drawing into other threats. You're drawing into interaction. You're you're managed to get control of the board pretty easily with a deck like this. So even if you're not swinging in with your flying man, uh, you're getting a ton of value out of it and probably winning with something else anyway. Absolutely. All right. So if you're double spelling, I feel like you want to frequently lead with Thieves Guild Enforcer later in the game, especially because it's the only ETB trigger in the deck. And it triggers off of any rogue that enters the battlefield. Yeah, I do think that I still am totally fine with leading with Wind Robber on turn one when I have Enforcer in my hand and just letting that go till later. Because I don't want to play Enforcer on turn one anyway and just have it die. But I'm okay with Wind Robber dying, kind of, if if the opponent goes that way. But um, it is super powerful just to remember that those triggers stack. And so if you play a Thieves Guild Enforcer and then play another Thieves Guild Enforcer and then play a Soaring Thought Thief, as I was outlining a minute ago, that's just a lot of mill triggers. It adds up to like eight cards on its own right there, I think. So So I think we'll probably agree on this, but turn one, in basically any matchup, even games two and three, if you've got a turn one hand disruption spell or a, a one drop that you can cast, aren't you always just casting the hand disruption spell? Hmm. In part because your creatures scale in such a way that they're not necessarily powerful early. They become powerful in the mid to late game, but your hand disruption is essentially the best thing you can do on turns one, sometimes on turn two. Yeah, I mean, magic, especially 
if the opponent's mulling or something like that, then the hand disruption becomes sort of more tempting, especially because it's just like, well, they had to maybe do something risky or they don't have an early play or they only have like a one drop or that's the way they're going to get their mana online. So the Lanamore elf, there's a lot of reasons that you might want to do the hand disruption over the one drop. And like you said, Stan is like your creatures are not aggroing out the opponent typically. And so I think you, you're more of a disruptive deck that wins eventually than an aggressive deck that disrupts after the fact, I think. Depending on the matchup, of course. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree too. Although I, I will say, over the last couple of days that I've been playing this, I feel like the number of decks that Inquisition is not that great against is moving up a little bit. For sure. Like, which is which is an interesting thing, I think, to talk about in our next discussion which is basically why inquisition versus thought sees and when do we switch between the two i mean let's talk about it now I, i've been running a split basically since the beginning and part of that is because i opened two inquisition when i like got all of my when i got my strixhaven box and i didn't feel like crafting the full playset because i had the thought seizes and i figured like i'm not it, it's hard for me to think of a scenario where i'm really losing an edge by playing two and two rather than just like going all in on four I okay yeah i'm kind of borderline on it now after having played for a while i mean i um there's been just so many hands where like i try to thoughts i try to inquisition someone they brainstorm they put their their low casting cost spells on top of their deck and leave me with like their giant payoffs where i'm like well i can't take time warp with this but boy i would have loved to have taken that with with thoughtsies you know because their hand is nothing and grow spiral and time warp and you're like okay <laughs> I think that I might move my way back over to a split as well, just because of that. Yeah. I, I think you're right, Dave, where it's like, depending on the meta that you're seeing, the value of inquisition goes up and down uh, pretty flexibly. Uh, And also the existence of a card like brainstorm, I think does impact the value of hand disruption in general. And we'll talk about that. I think in the brainstorm section, I'm kind of fine with four right now uh, because typically if there is an early game to disrupt, you're going to get it with Inquisition and you're sort of setting up your memory lapse. You're setting up your draw on the lock. You're setting up your side, so- like the sideboard counter spells you have that like let you lock down that mid and long game. So like, it's kind of like, well, this is my early counter spell because you're not even going to chance to cast it. And then like, I just have all my interaction for the later spells that I couldn't get with Inquisition, but I have been considering maybe shaving some of those other, playsets like to fit in maybe two additional thoughtsies depending on the value of interaction like maybe a singleton brainstorm i might want to touch that sacred cow uh into the story maybe goes down to a three of like i mentioned like i think this is an experimentation uh time for the deck at least for me where i don't think you know the the week one winning version of this deck is not going to be the week three winning version of this deck just because of metagames all right This next section is called to brainstorm or not to brainstorm. And I want to tell the listeners that Shane wrote a page over a page. page. Shane, notable humans, Tron, Dredge player, wrote a page and a half about a single blue mana instant that draws you cards. Never thought I'd see the day. Never. In the history of brainstorm writing and pontification, this is a drop in the bucket. I'm sorry to ask you two to do this with me. Um, but I, I think we should really have a brainstorm clinic here as best we can. I don't think any of us are brainstorm experts 
Can I talk? Can I revisit one thing though? Now that we're back here, just to like try Please. to draw a little bit of distinction about what I was saying earlier, where Stan was like, "I have no idea what you're talking about." I I don't think that brainstorm is highly synergistic with this specific deck. Is what I I would say by saying this is not really a brainstorm deck. You know, there's there's not that many things that enable you to to reshuffle your deck. There's not, not that many ways. You're not digging for a combo to, card. You're not digging for a combo card. You're not. You don't have a bunch of extra spells to get rid of your bad cards like you do with faithless looting and strategic planning and things like that. So that that's the distinction I was trying to draw between a deck like this where we're we're running this cantrip for value because it's a very very powerful card versus a deck where this card is super on plan for everything that the deck wants to do and you get to use all the different parts of the buffalo to make it work right it's not like we're yeah. putting our payoff back on the top of our deck so that we can transmogrify it into play or something like that you know that those are decks that i think use all of brainstorm whereas this one is like it's just a really good card we're playing it in this deck because it's a really good card and it's really cheap right but you i don't think it's correct to ever play opt over this I don't think you would play Serum Visions over it because, and, and the reason is, you're a deck full of reactive instant speed spells. So you are drawing three to potentially find an answer to whatever it is your opponent's right. doing. So let's come back to that note because that's about yeah, power level more than about synergy, I think. You know what I mean? And I think that Shane has some thoughts about that particular question, especially as presented yeah. in Historic, because we do see this question come up a lot. Okay, when Brainstorm was spoiled, people were like, well, it's not that good without fetch lands. Well, how much better is it than opt without fetch lands to be able to get rid of your bad cards? What happens when you brainstorm lock yourself? I think what that's is the type a brainstorm of lock? <laughs> yeah, what what does that even mean? Yeah. So, Shane, yeah, let's let's talk let's talk about this powerful spell. You're new to being blue. Yeah. This is the first cantrip you've ever cast well, in your life. Not in 2020, my friend, but you know, we're getting through it. Coming yeah. on the other side. Um, right. I can, um brainstorm the reason I want to talk about this is I think most of our listeners have never cast this in their lives before it's made its way into historic. And I think because of its pedigree, a lot of people, including us, were excited to cast it. Brainstorm is a really tough spell to use well. It's really, really tough. There has been so much ink spilled and so many keys clacked about the use of Brainstorm. And I'm sure I'm not using it that well. And so I really just want to take a look at Brainstorm 2. Uh, is it just so powerful that you're just going to jam four into most of your blue decks? Like, is it just sort of like raw power level is amazing? Or is it something that, like Dave was hinting at, like what's the synergy level we need versus the raw power level of Brainstorm? And then there's like that argument of whether it's truly better than Opt in a lot of decks that are running it. And Stan, I think, is on seems to be on the side where he's just like, yeah, it's better than Opt. Because you're, you're digging for more cards. We're, we're going to let you talk this through a little bit, Shane, I think, before we hop in with conclusions there. But let's yeah. tell tell us how it how did it feel to get to look at the top of your deck for the first time ever? <laughs> oh, it, it felt it, it was it was a novel experience. The hard part was that then I was like, oh, I didn't draw three. I just I, <laughs> I got to put two of these back. I mean, technically you did. But uh, yeah, as point. far as Narset goes, you did draw three. So keep that yeah. in mind, folks. But well. I mean, like, let's 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 quickly just want to look at it next to opt, right? Let's what argument would people have for opt being better than brainstorm? Opt is like you're always going to see two cards deep. If it's like if you're, let's say you're looking for a certain card, and you don't see it with your opt, you got through two cards of your deck. The argument against brainstorm is like, oh, you technically only got one card into your deck 
if you don't do anything else after you cast it. So is Opt better? Eh, depends on who you're talking to. Um, I don't have an argument on that. I just wanted to bring it up. That there's, there's, I think there's people saying things in both ways, depending on how you're using this kind of cantrip. But the, the characteristics of Brainstorm that make it a lot different than a spell like Opt and what make it much more interesting and gives you many more options and makes it a lot harder to use to its full potential. Like you see three cards total, but two cards go back on top of your deck. Okay. And that's what Dave was saying is like, people like to say that brainstorm is only good with shuffle effects, like a fetch land, because something like a fetch land, you put those two cards you don't want right now on top of your deck and you shuffle them away after you crack that fetch. You then are making the card draw three, discard two, which is great. It's a great card, right? But if you can't do that, if you cannot shuffle away the top two cards you put back, you are quote unquote brainstorm locked, meaning your next two draws are locked in. And if you simply put back some expensive spell you couldn't cast right there, if it was a fatal push against a control deck, you effectively still have the card in your hand anyway, just a turn or two down the line. Rogues does, of course, give us a shuffle effect. Okay, this is a lot. This is this is a lot. I don't want to go on to the next part of this discussion without trying to break this down a little bit where, where we are right now. Okay, Stan. Yes, Dave. How do you feel about Brainstorm versus Opt? I think Brainstorm is uh, obviously better. I agree. By the way, I don't have I don't have a hot take here where Opt is is better in some cases and brainstorm is better in some cases. I think there's a lot of people who might want to try to get into those discussions. Uh, but I agree, Stan, I, I honestly don't think there's any part place where you would run opt over brainstorm in a deck that wanted a cantrip for any purpose. I'm glad we agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's a lot. That's a big take. So I, I would like to hear Shane, if you have engineered, a spot where you think it is better. You said you didn't really have an opinion, but no, I think, I think the only real thing is like, if, if you are digging for a very specific answer, you see more cards with opt. Like if you didn't have it in the top of your deck type thing, you're actually, you're digging through your deck faster. That's truly not true. Just like opt at most, you see two cards with brainstorm. You see three cards period. But if, if you, if you don't get the card you want in those three cards, you only saw one. If you drew one card, but your opt draws you two. No, no opt draws like you to, one. But well, you see two. You one, but you see two. So you're seeing you're seeing more through your deck with right, opt than you are with brainstorm. However, however, you have to scry first. Yeah. Right. You have to scry first, and so you don't have a lot of knowledge of what you're seeing with brainstorm. You get to see all three cards at the same time. Number one. And then number two, you always get to make the decision about how to fix your curve at worst with yeah. what you get from, from Brainstorm, right? Yeah, for sure. Stan, are you on the same page with me there? Oh, totally. Yes. Okay. Hey, look, I, I, I am not saying I want to run Opt over Brainstorm in this yeah. deck. I'm just saying like they, these are the devil's advocate arguments you will hear about I, the differences between the two cards. Correct. I think it's a bad argument. I think that on power, on rate... For me, there is no scenario where I th where I would run opt over brainstorm for value purposes. Yeah, I, I think the, the one place where it gets interesting is in a deck that has zero shuffle effects. Like, yeah, that's a lot of decks. But but even then, I think because you're always going to be seeing three cards, I think brainstorm gets the nub. 
a hundred percent. I I think on rate again to be super clear, brainstorm is a better card on rate than opt is in a vacuum. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Now, <laughs> now listen, listen. It's a lot more complicated if you think start thinking about like the entire history of one mana blue cantrips. Okay, in the world of historic, we only have two cards to pick from. It's either opt or it's brainstorm. Some decks you're going to run both, right? Um, the if you start throwing a card like preordain into the mix or ponder into the mix, then two and this sorceries. Is the thing that, this is still. Be- Correct. Better early plays. There's still two sorceries. That's the thing is that is that I do think that it starts to get a lot muddier on pure value if you just look at preordain. Yeah, is the one because um, and you, you see that bear, borne out in environments where both of those cards are legal without a lot of shuffle effects. Like in Pauper, people tend to run preordain over brainstorm first. And I think that that makes sense. So if you think about like the power level of these cards in a vacuum, it's basically that Ponder and Preordain, I think, are the best ones, honestly, because they're better in more situations and they're better early plays. Then Brainstorm, then Opt, and then Serum Visions is somewhere around in the same thing for me. And so if you just look at that whole thing, that that's kind of how it works. In art, where we have it right now, it's very clear to me in this in this format that Brainstorm is just better than Opt. Right. Well, let, let's get back to its use in this deck. Right. Because uh, that's kind of what we're talking about. And Rogues does offer you a single true shuffle effect in Fabled Passage. It's our fetch land. Certainly better than nothing. It gives you access to the Brainstorm 101 passing grade of shuffling away cards you don't want. So let's say you can't shuffle stuff away, right? Like this is, I think, probably more often than not, you can't always shuffle stuff away, but your hand's looking pretty dire. You got like some high CMC options, maybe some creature removal when you need low drops or you need your counter magic, you're gonna have to choose to what to put back on top. Remember that if you cannot shuffle these away, they are still effectively sort of in your hand. Yes, but let me let me flip you on this Please. though. Okay, so if they are effectively in your hand, then Brainstorm just drew you three cards. Okay, like if your line of logic is these cards that are on top of your deck that you don't want are still in your hand, you still just paid one blue to draw three cards. You follow? No, no, <laughs> no, because you you put the you put the cards back from your hand on top. Right. But Shane, so, you can't you can't tell me that the cards count in your hand if they're bad, because I know that they're on top of my deck, but they don't count in my hand as, as on, on a plus side. If I want to draw those cards later, you know what I mean? Like this is, this is my whole problem with like the brainstorm lock thing. Like, well, I guess I didn't say that was necessarily bad. I just said that think about them as effectively in your hand because you're denying yourself true draw steps. You're drawing, you're, you're drawing cards you know about, which can be good that's bad. true yep you're not you're not magically making cards disappear is right. the important thing here right. right yeah that's true so like like dave's getting at your best bet here is to use the information you have to plan as well as possible if you can't shuffle these things away so like maybe you don't need two counter spells right now maybe you don't need to make your six land drop right now maybe you keep a swamp and put back a drowned catacomb because it's going to come into play tapped otherwise and yep. you can plan to to get that drowned catacomb next turn and you get get it untapped so that's you know easy stuff right yeah let me try to rephrase what i was saying a minute ago and see if this vibes with you guys a little bit more would you play a card that was a one blue instant that said draw three cards skip your next two draw steps yes (laughs) huh i don't know actually that's a lot 
I, that's a big that's I a big th- thing. I think that's a powerful card and yeah. most people would play it. <laughs> yeah. And it's cuz you're not you're not losing any card advantage like that there's no card disadvantage to that. Right. And that but that's the same thing that we're saying is like if you put bad cards on top of your deck and you're like, "Well, then I don't have real draw steps." Like you just played a card that said blue draw 3 cards, skip your next two draw steps. That's pretty good. Like it's not gonna you're gonna die sometimes from playing that because you're not gonna get the right cards and then you're gonna know the next two, two turns that you're also not getting the right cards. But like, come on, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a good. I mean, it's all about optionality, and brainstorm gives you that in this deck in a lot of ways. I I just think it gets a little complicated, and and the reason we may be like kind of tripping over our own words here is because like how we're using the word draw. Right, like, because putting cards on top of your yeah. library doesn't actually feel or is effectively drawing cards because they're not in your hand. But what you're saying, Dave, is by knowing what those cards are, we're effectively drawing them because we have so much information. Well, yeah, and this is a worst case scenario too. It's in a situation like Shane said where you don't get to fix the cards that you got rid of from through some other way, whether it's through a fabled passage or whatever deck you're playing it in. But so. That's kind of like, I think, the, 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 the experience you will have most often, I think, with Brainstorm in this deck is I've got to put some stuff back on top of my deck. I'm not always able to shuffle it away. Think about how that lets you plan. And that's a big value of Brainstorm. But there are a lot of other really good uses of Brainstorm that I wanted to highlight with you all. And some of these I think you mentioned, you know, we've mentioned in the, in the episode so far, like you can protect your hand from hand interaction. And we see a lot of that in historic, right? That's another good reason to not, there's, I'm going to give you a lot of good reasons to not cast brainstorm early. And I think that's kind of like something that I want to talk about with you all is like when you think about casting brainstorm and how to use it differently than a lot of other cantrips you've used in the past. And everything I just keep getting around to is like, don't cast it. I'm like, like, just, just hold it. It's always better later is kind of what I keep getting at. And so like you protect yourself from hand interaction because you can put the cards on top of your deck and like effectively hide them. You know, you when the first time I saw an opponent do this, my mind was blown. I was like, what a good use of brainstorm. And then like two turns later, they thought sees me and I did it myself. I was like, what a good use of brainstorm. And it's really good. So think about that. Like, it's just a, like, there's a lot of options. Again, I keep saying this word brainstorm lets you do a lot more than just dig through your deck. It lets you put cards on top of your deck, which has value in a thought inquisition format. Stan, I mean, you mentioned digging for spells. I did. Yeah. How how are you thinking about doing it? Like when like when does that come up for you? Frequently at instant speed in response to whatever my opponent is doing. So like if they're casting a spell that I don't have a re- response to, like that's a good time to brainstorm. If they play a creature, you know, and I don't have a fatal push or a drown, that seems like a good time to brainstorm. <laughs> yeah, just getting getting options, seeing three cards. That's right. Yeah. I mean, of course, you can use it to fix like a bad hand too. like if you have a marginal two land hand and you're like, I'm going to brainstorm to be able to either get a land or get a spell like whichever one you feel like you need in that moment. That's just another thing that it does. That's just good. Yeah. The thing that I'm like, I've been thinking about a little bit quietly over here is whether or not I fully agree that you got to hold brainstorm and wait for a reason to cast it. Well, I'm I'm going to give you more reasons. Okay. I think I think I think brain, brainstorm is so good at giving you late game opportunity and options that casting it early is just like a a waste of one of the best cards ever printed. 
right? In terms of like the power that it g- gives you and like things like that are like, you know, you can sandbag some lands. Like this is a deck that you get a lot of lands as the game goes on. So like you brainstorm, you put two lands back on top and you get three fresh cards, hopefully action cards again. And then, and then you can also at that point probably sandbag like a fabled passage and shuffle those away. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. Um, memory lapse, really powerful, popular spell right now. Brainstorm lets you draw that card that the opponent memory lapsed you on back immediately. So if, if you get memory lapsed, you can brainstorm, get that card back, potentially cast it again. Why not? So, it, but it sounds to me like you're presenting this idea that don't cast brainstorm unless there's a reason to. Oh yeah, do not you do you do not use brainstorm as like an opt in my opinion. And I'm, I think I did a lot of reading and preparation for this too. And like, there's a lot of experienced players that are just like, the guides are how not to cast brainstorm. Like, just do not cast it unless you're getting the most value out of it. Like, this is not an opt. This is not a I had open blue mana card mm-hmm. in my opinion. And I think in the opinion of people who are much better than me. Is a good reason to cast it then just like I have a clunky hand and I'm trying to find a better plan to develop in turns two and three where it's like I wouldn't I wouldn't don't keep the clunky hand like mole. See, I, I, I would di- diverge there from what you're saying, but I think I think the point <clears throat> that you're trying to make is really good, Shane, in the sense of like there are more reasons to cast this card and it's more powerful when you don't just try to play it to fix your hand if you can. But part of the reason the card is powerful is because if you had to mull the five yes, and you need to fix your bad five with the brainstorm, you can do it. Like you should do it. You, you need to not like try to be too precious with things that are really powerful either. Yeah. But that's why a card, a one mana card that does this much stuff is good. It's because you can use it in both of those situations. And yeah, so, I think it's, but it's a great it's, reminder to be like, listen, you're With not just casting this to get an extra card. Yeah, there are so many edges that you can get to make this way, way, way better. Make sure you wait. But like, yeah. if somebody's going to kill your your soaring thought thief, and you have three blue up, and you only have a brainstorm in hand, you know what I mean? Like, you're not going to sit there and be like, "Well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to shuffle away the bad cards if I get this." Yeah. You know, you're you're going to just play it to try to get a counter spell. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's flexible. I think I think that there are there are no hard rules on brainstorm i think that there are a lot of like soft rules and there's a lot of edges to be gained with using it and i'm just sort of scratching the surface myself and i think this is like brainstorm 101 like stuff to think about when you're using the spell like do not think about the spell like opt because it's not opt it's better than opt yeah although i would also say yes it is better than opt it's always better than opt by the way but um the thing i would say is that i think that these rules also apply to a card like opt as well which is like sure don't just don't just cast op for no reason you know like save it for a while and just like hang out like if you're playing a deck that has that or in the era before like you can wait that's it's an instant wait until there's a good time to to get all the value out of it i think that applies to lots of things it's just very writ large with this card yeah I'm, i'm sorry for taking so much time on brainstorm i think it's worth it this is a wild card that a lot of people are casting for the first time including myself yeah I think I think less people are casting it for the first time than you think. No, I, think I think there's a, I think there's a lot just, of arena players, Dave. Yeah, that's true too. Modern's never had it. Not not no not everyone plays Legacy. Not everyone plays Popper. You're just old. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's been in a lot of sets. Do we like casting it? Are we excited to finally have it's access hard. to this? It's really hard to use. Well, it's weird. It's a weird card. My last question for you, Shane, 
and, and Dave, if you want to weigh in, have you found that the nightmare scenario is true where it's, you have to wait for your opponents to resolve their brainstorms for too long? I'm the one waiting, taking forever. I'm the one getting the your go from the other person just because I'm like, wait, what now? And I have to click this now and do this now. Yeah. I've seen surprisingly few brainstorms cast against me, weirdly. Hmm. I don't know, let's talk about the sideboard though, Stan. And probably Dave. I think you might have some thoughts here. Yeah, the sideboard. 14 cards to play in games two and three. Some of them are probably more contentious than others. Let's start with the hot one. Two Graph Digger's Cage has been generally stock that you can, you know, you could play any other graveyard hate, but Cage. It's a total non-bow with this deck. It's symmetrical, so you can't use it with Luris. You can't use it with Agadim's Awakening. When do you guys bring it in? I mean, I bring like it if in. It's, if, it, if it's cage or bust, like if it's like I'm going to lose unless I get a Graft Digger's Cage, then I bring it in. But like I don't do it like stuff I used to, like elves or goblins. I'm not going to bring in cage because I have other ways to win that matchup. Like if I'm playing gruel, I would probably bring it in against those decks, but in this, no, like it has to be lights out. Yeah. Yeah. But on the other hand, like the decks that I'm mostly looking at this against are like cat, like cat oven where they're just going to outvalue me. Like, I want to turn that off. Uh, Dreadheart Arcanist where they can recast fatal push over and over again. If I don't happen to get enough stuff online, like that's really bad for me. I'm going to turn that off. I'm going to turn Kroxa off. Kroxa is actually a pretty tough card for this deck to deal with. Yes. I think in a lot of ways, uh, although you can kill it pretty easily, it's just, it keeps coming back and by them being able to escape it, it turns off your, the best parts of your spells. So that that's problematic. So anything like that is, is big. I mean, is it Phoenix too? I think bringing, in against them yeah yeah i for sure just to keep keep those birds grounded i i think where it's really great is where it's consistent card where the graveyard becomes a source of consistent card advantage the way is it phoenix arcanist um or cat oven combo yeah. e- even though that's not i mean is that card advantage i don't know it's just such a powerful engine that it's just, it's just worth grindy yeah. yeah and then they get mayhem devil up and then you're in real trouble so yeah but as long as we're talking about graveyard hate like cling to dust pretty good in this deck too i think because it's pretty versatile and it's only one man at instant speed i've been playing two in my list in addition to cage i i would be worried about getting enough cards in my graveyard to make yeah, the dust really good you know do you find that you get to cast it multiple times a game or uh no i and i don't think you really need to because it's because it's so surgical i mean that's that's true i guess in the situations that we were outlining it's like if i have an opponent who's got you know, um, citrus supplier and they're just like dumping stuff into their graveyard. Like clean to dust is good, but not great in that situation, but it's very good. Like they have it quite often. I found where they're using that to like get rid of their bad cards, but yeah, I I guess I like it in tandem with cage, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like, I might not actually draw my cage early enough, but here's four cards that are pretty good. And cling to dust also potentially lets me have a bit of a game plan early. Yeah. And you can gain incidental life off of it or just draw a card sometimes. So sure. Right. I, I think worth looking at a soul guide lantern since you can buy that back with Luris. Mm-hmm. Um, Leyland of the void is also legal, but it shuts off your Luris because it's a permanent. So something to think about. All right. We got two Aether gusts. It's useful against gruel goblins and Nissas. All sorts of stuff. Combo, te- there's, you know, teamer combo type stuff. There's all sorts of spells to hit with this. Yeah, I mean, you just put um, Magma Opus back on top of their their yeah. library or whatever. Mill it away. I mean, that's what's, it's kind of like a memory lapse in a lot of ways, because sometimes they just don't have a good choice either. They're like, oh, if I put it back on top, then they just, you know, then it's going to get milled. All right, here's a card. I need your, your help. Two Legion's End, appearing in a lot of sideboards. What is the deal with this card? Uh, we should probably read it. 
Yeah, it's one in a black sorcery. Exile target creature and opponent controls with CMC two or less and all other creatures that player controls with the same name. Then that player reveals their hand and exiles all cards with that name from their hand and graveyard. My question for you is, what are you trying to cast this against? Core Spirit Dancer, I think. Yeah, there's just, I mean, there's just a lot of creatures you, you gotta kill. There's just a lot of things like, you know, it, it exiles Aura's cards, which is really good because then they can't get that Luris value. There's some black recursive decks. It can it can be a two for one, which never sucks. Like uh, when you want that exile effect with your removal in black, like this is kind of what you're going for at the efficiency. Like it's not, you can't play Magma Spray or whatever. So I think it has a lot of play. It's just, it, it, it looks bad because it's two mana sorcery and you're like, well, what am I doing with this? I also think it's pretty medium. It's like it's medium. not, it's not great. It's fine. It's a little bit of a, of a escape valve for a couple of things that might be problematic, but there's probably other cards you could play over it without any problem. I, and, and Cling to Dust is the card that I've been playing over it in part because I haven't felt like crafting it <laughs> since yeah. it is a rare and it's yeah. a puzzling one at that. I mean, I would try to play something if I was going to, I'll tell you what, where I would go if I was going to take this card out, I would try to play something like, uh, I would consider like Baleful Mastery or something like that to, to, because this deck really struggles against resolved planeswalkers because the creatures aren't big enough to, to kill, like the evasive creatures aren't big enough to kill them in the air all the time. And if you don't grab them with your hand disruption or counter spell, like if they get a Narset out or they get like, you know, six man of Vraska or some crazy stuff like that, like you just die. Yeah. And you're never going to get a high toughness planeswalker off the board with this deck. So I would consider something like that. Yeah. Resolved, uh, Clothis sure stinks like yeah. really big time. So yeah, this would, that's perfectly fine. All right. We got a couple of negate, a playable card. We have a couple tyrant scorn, a nice additional removal spell against creature decks where your hand disruption or counter magic might be weaker. So yeah, the big thing about this card actually is that I, I actually thought that this card, this card is good in a deck like a uh, or against a deck like John food where you want to like kill arcanist or bounce the dragon whose name I suddenly forget because um, so it gives you play against a small creature and also against a much larger Corval? creature for the same mana cost. Yeah. Koval or whatever. Like it's not, it's not perfect. It's not like it's a game breaker in that matchup, but it was something I found useful to be able to move a big thing out of the way still. Yeah. I bring this card in a lot against creature decks where like, I don't love thoughtsies or, or yeah. yeah. All right. We got a couple of mystical dispute. Multi-format staple, why not? You know, one mana. That's, that's all there is to it. It's one mana. All mana right. leak. Last, last slot in the sideboards that we're looking at. Two languish, um, potentially current the current de facto black sweeper since it's very good against big creature decks, especially Gruel, which can be problematic matchups for rogues when they run you out of removal. I think Witch's Vengeance is also an option since it's good against the mirror. Crippling Fear is an option to protect your creatures from sweepers. Yeah, I've, I've come around on Languish a little bit. Like, I think it's just has a lot of game against a lot of decks. Like, it's good against Auras, which is still popular. Like, there's anything that it gets around those protection effects. And, like, minus four toughness is pretty good against, you know, Auras unless they got pretty tall on you pretty quickly. Then you have other options for getting rid of those creatures as well. So, I, I think Languish is, Languish is the kind of card that wins you certain games and certain matchups uh surprisingly well because you don't need to play to the board pretty quickly like you can sort of sit back maybe fatal push one or two things let them overcommit, languish doesn't it only take one aura to make spirit dancer a five toughness creature though like i feel like what's good against auras is just 
fatal push and all of your point removal. Totally true. Yeah, I think that this helps get rid of the support cards, though. Sometimes, like, so they have an Eidolon and they have the dog out and you know, mm. they have, a, like, a whitish board with tokens. Like, this can help you get through that to be able to kill their big creature with your fatal push, ultimately. But um, it's not perfect. I, it is good against Gruul, though. I think Languish has been pretty good for me against that deck as well. Um, you need sweepers. It's it's nice. It, it's This is one of those weird decks where you can play with small creatures, small tempo-y creatures, and a sweeper as well. There's not a lot of decks that get to do that. Anything else about the sideboard y'all want to talk about before we move into some our experiences and observations about matchups? Great. So overall, one of the reasons I think this deck is so powerful and interesting is because it has this feeling that it's good against practically everyone if you have the right mix of removal and or counter magic and or hand disruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's kind of got those trappings of a deck that can disrupt any strategy if your hand lines up correctly. Obviously, there are some tough matches, um, I think. I'm going to share some of those with you guys. Love to hear your reactions. One of the- Yeah, I was going to say one of the keys to me, I think, is just in my mind, the best decks, of course, are the ones where Fatal Push is good and Inquisition of Kozilek is good. You mean the best matchups? Them. The best matchups for you to play against. So I, that's just kind of like there is the highest risk I think of those two cards being kind of average in game one. And so those are the ones that I really take an eye, like keep an eye on for like look getting rid of, or do I have to get rid of these post board? Mm-hmm. Um, so just something to keep in mind there. It's like, is fatal push good against the stack is hand disruption good against the stack. Then I'm going to have a good matchup. That, that, that's an interesting litmus test. And maybe we can run it against some of these actual specific matchups that I've presented. You know, for one, I feel like aggressive, very wide creature decks can be tough, especially in game run uh, when they run you out of removal, maybe play around your counter magic and then start to beat you down before you're able to either recover or or really defend yourself. So stuff like Gruul, Angels, Elves and Green White Company, I think can be potential problems if you have a a clunky hand that's maybe leaning in more on hand disruption and counter magic than actual board based removal. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of these are like like elves, maybe you can fly over, but they get so big so fast, it's hard to keep up unless you kill their their ramp creatures early. Angels is super tough, I would imagine, because they have flyers, so it makes your creatures bad, and most of your you probably don't have enough removal to kill them. So I, I think that these seem these make sense. I also dislike other graveyard decks because they don't suffer to your mill plan at all. Um, you're essentially enabling them with your mill plan. So stuff like Is It Phoenix, Arcanist, or the Sacrifice strategies are basically grateful for your mill cards. And they can even play escape creatures to shut down your mill engine entirely and make um, your Into the Story just dead. And your creatures as well a lot weaker. Worse, yeah. I think it depends on the graveyard deck. I think like those the ones you mentioned there yeah, are not great. But I think there's like graveyard combo decks like where they're trying to flashback things with somewhat expensive spells. Yeah, give me all those like just they they're you know they're effectively combo strategies or combo control strategies i feel like i've got good game against those kind of graveyard decks yeah and the difference there is like if you think about the jeskai opus or team or opus deck which i think is kind of what you're talking about here shane Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. is that yeah like the unearth like yeah those kind of style is that it's a real surgical payoff that they have and you can either hit them with a hand disruption spell to get rid of the thing that's going to get the card back or you just counter their payoff card when it comes back and you're like you don't really care about torrential gear hulk once you really get going 
you know, because you're probably flying over them or you're just attacking with Thieves Guild Enforcer and it is what it is. But Right. So then on the other hand, what I think are some potentially favorable matchups are threat light decks that are vulnerable to, you know, only one or two removal spells with potentially um, that potentially have a hard time recovering from your early disruption. So like strategies where a couple fatal pushes backed by mid to late game counter magic can sometimes, you know, have a hard time recovering and, and rebuilding once you have the game under control, even if you're just like chipping away with a couple one or two mana creatures. Um, so decks that I think fall into this category are auras. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a bad matchup at all. Uh, and likewise, mono black, um, that vampire zombie deck, I think is a pretty favorable matchup. And like mirror matches, if you know how to play the mirror, like I think this is the type of strategy that really uh, gives the advantage to the player who knows their role in the matchup um, as opposed to one who's just kind of like trying to play it out without real familiarity with what they're trying to do in this type of environment. Yeah, I feel like the mirror is like heavily toeholdy where it's like whoever sort of gets going fairly early on, gets some cards in the opponent's graveyard, gets their drown the locks and whatnot online, I think usually has the advantage. Um, that's kind of fairly obvious. I think it's I think it's hard to claw back yeah. in the mirror. I also really like my matchup against control decks. I think for some of the reasons that Shane mentioned above with like what the Magma Opus decks are trying to do. So Magma Opus, Blue Eye Control, Blue Black Control, I think are actually favored for you because you have so much hand disruption and counter magic um and even decks as whether it's azorius or demir if they're playing shark typhoon even your fatal pushes find a target um because shark tokens like sometimes they might get out of reach of like a shock effect but they're always dead to fatal push yeah i definitely in some of those matches have been sitting there post board and been like do I keep fatal push because of shark typhoon or like what what am i doing here but and then likewise, combo decks, I think, can struggle against your early hand disruption backed by ongoing counter magic. So this new Tainted Pack deck that's coming up, Goblins, uh, Nine Lives and Neostorm, if and when they'll show up, I feel like you have a pretty good plan against them. Game one, it gets better uh, post-board too. All Anything right. you guys would add to good or bad matchups? Yeah, I mean, I just, I definitely like, I, I like burying the slow decks like that have expensive spells because you just are far more efficient than them. And yeah, I, I agree. It's like if 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 the the opponent is doing more efficient spells that you can't sort of counter uh, with cheaper spells than they are, that's where stuff gets rocky. And I think that's where I think we're going to see the sideboard sort of uh, bend itself a little bit. Like maybe there's more sweepers for small creature decks if if they're making a comeback. Yeah, I think that the sideboard is, of course, where games are won and lost in best of three. So, hey, tell your cat I said hi. Guys, did you like playing this deck? Yeah. Next question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's good deck. No, I mean, you know, I said this to a couple of people over the last couple of days, but like this deck is everything that I've enjoyed about Mono Blue Tempo, but just like way better, like absurdly better <laughs> than than Mono Blue Tempo is because of the addition of good creature removal and hand disruption. Like it's sort of like not even a question to me. Stan, what about you? Loved it. What's not to love in this blue black tempo deck. It scratches that itch that I felt playing things like Delver, Grixis Shadow and Modern. Um, and you know, I love a good counter spell. Yeah. I also think that even though the deck might change shape in the weeks to come, 
it's kind of a beautiful sight to behold right now. Like I think it's built really beautifully and all the synergies between the threats and the non-creature spells just line up so well that when your plan is going as you'd like it to, you feel super powerful and it comes together in a way that not a lot of other decks do in the format. You know, partially because like so many other decks in the format were board-based and it's just like good creatures swinging at each other. Um, But seeing things come together so beautifully and everything working together so elegantly, I think makes this deck kind of like a perfect specimen and kind of a sight to behold in and of itself. Totally agree. So, but you and I are blue blue card cast and magic players already. I want to know how, how... Shane felt about playing this deck. Hey, look this this is this isn't blue. This is Demir, my friend. Okay, <laughs> I, <see. laughs> I I mean, I honestly was really surprised how much I enjoyed playing the deck. Like, but the issue is the games take too long, and it, so like it's like it's not a climbing deck. Like this is like even if it's like a sixty sixty five percent deck that's constantly interesting to play. I feel like that can be an issue. Now, is that an issue for your time as a human being? Because I would think that's a lot of time for you to make decisions that pay off if you're smart. No, that's the thing. It's a, that's the thing. It's like this is this is not a uh, this is not a bathroom break deck. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> no. Like if 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 you really value climbing and the rank you reach, like rogues is probably not maybe the best for you unless you play a lot of arena. Like unless you really you know you have a lot of hours and you like playing arena and that's awesome for you. Um, on a that game was pretty fun and I felt like my choices mattered basis. Like I think this deck's great. Like it's like if, if you want twenty minutes of great magic, I think fifteen of them in rogues are, are pretty good. Like maybe the last five are kind of, you know, rote. But it's uh there's there's a lot of good there. I think it's the the total package of this deck is pretty special. Like all the pieces click together well. I think drown the lock into the story feel like some of like the most powerful spells in the format in this deck. And I just, I just liked being able to bury like these big splashy spell opponents trying to go over the top on me and just be like, nah, like I'm going to beat you down with this one, one, my friend. Oh, time warp again. Yeah. So I I thought it was great. Um, It's definitely, it's like, I think it's a certain deck for a certain type of player who wants to do a certain thing in magic. And that is have fun and make choices and play powerful spells. I don't think you're you're not going to climb as fast as you will with mono red or gruel or auras or something like that. But that doesn't mean it's any better or worse. It just means it's different. Good deck dive, guys. I don't know what else to add. We finally converted Shane. I will keep playing this. Um, It's extremely rare that we have a deck dive where all three people liked playing the deck. I would say. Yeah, like the, the last time was like, what, like Mono Red Prison? And that's like not as overtly good as this deck. I, well, I'm yeah, also we glad can always we... count on Shane to hate decks that Stan and I like. So And vice versa. I'm, <laughs> I'm also glad that we didn't have Shane ask, what am I supposed to do with Memory Lapse? I know. I'm glad. I finally figured it out. Well, we did it. Another one in the bag. But I think that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern or pioneer or historic, I guess we're talking about standard now, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon over at patreon.com slash the dive down. You can also support us by using the dive down promo code with mana traders. 
If you use promo code THEDIVEDOWN, all one word, you'll get 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. And if you play Magic Arena, you can support the Dive Down without spending any money by using our affiliate link to download the free deck tracking software at untapped.thedivedown.com. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, remember, it's Vogue to be Rogue! Another one in the bag.